0: Chapter One, Section Twelve of the Greek View of Life, by Goldsworthy Lowes Dickinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Geeson. Chapter One, Section Twelve: Critical and Skeptical Opinion in Greece and now let us turn to a point for which perhaps some readers have long been waiting, and with which they may have expected us to begin rather than to end. So far, in considering the part played by religion in Greek life, we have assumed the position of orthodoxy we have endeavoured to place ourselves at the standpoint of the man who did not criticise or reflect but accepted simply as a matter of course the tradition handed down to him by his fathers only so if at all was it possible for us to detach ourselves from our habitual preconceptions and to regard the pagan mythology not as a graceful invention of the poets but as a serious and at the time a natural and inevitable way of looking at the world now however it is time to turn to the other side and to consider the Greek religion as it appeared to contemporary critics. For critics there were, and sceptics. Or rather, to put it more exactly, there was a critical age succeeding an age of faith. As we trace, however imperfectly, the development of the Greek mind, we can observe their intellect and their moral sense expanding beyond the limits of their creed. Either as sympathetic though candid friends, or as avowed enemies, they bring to light its contradictions and defects, and as a result of the process one of two things happens. Either the ancient conception of the gods is transformed in the direction of monotheism, or it is altogether swept away, and a new system of the world built up, on the basis of natural science or of philosophy. These tendencies of thought we must now endeavour to trace, For we should have formed but an imperfect idea of the scope of the religious consciousness of the Greeks, if we confined ourselves to what we may call their orthodox faith. It is in their most critical thinkers, in Euripides and Plato, that the religious sense is most fully and keenly developed and it is in the philosophy that supervened upon the popular creed rather than in the popular creed itself that we shall find the highest and most spiritual reaches of their thought let us endeavour then in the first place to realise to ourselves how the greek religion must have appeared to one who approached it not from the side of unthinking acquiescence, but with the idea of discovering for himself how far it really met the needs and claims of the intellect and the moral sense. Let us imagine him turning to his Homer, to those poems which were the Bible of the Greek, his ultimate appeal both in religion and in ethics which were taught in the schools quoted in the law courts recited in the streets and from which the teacher drew his moral instances the rhetorician his allusions the artist his models every man his conception of the gods let us imagine some candid and ingenuous youth turning to his homer and repeating say the following passage of the iliad among the other gods fell grievous bitter strife and their hearts were carried diverse in their breasts and they clashed together with a great noise and the wide earth groaned and the clarion of great heaven rang around zeus heard as he sate upon olympus and his heart within him laughed pleasantly when he beheld that strife of the gods at this point let us suppose the reader pauses to reflect and is struck for the first time with a shock of surprise by the fact that the gods should be not only many, but opposed. And opposed on what issue? A purely human one, a war between Greeks and Trojans for the possession of a beautiful woman. Into such a contest the immortal gods descend fight with human weapons and dispute in human terms where is the single purpose that should mark the divine will where the repose of the wisdom that foreordained and knows the end not it is clear in this motley array of capricious and passionate wills then perhaps in zeus zeus who is lord of all he at least will impose upon this mob of recalcitrant deities the harmony which the pious soul demands he whose rod shakes the sky will arise and assert the law he in his majesty will speak the words alas what words let us take them straight from the lips of the king of gods and men hearken to me all gods and all ye goddesses that i may tell you that my heart within my breast commandeth me one thing let none essay be it goddess or be it god to wit to thwart my saying approve ye it altogether that with all speed i may accomplish these things whomsoever I shall perceive minded to go apart from the gods, to succour Trojans or Danaans, chastened in no seemly wise, shall he return to Olympus, or I will take and cast him into misty Tartarus, right far away, where is the deepest gulf beneath the earth there are the gate of iron and threshold of bronze as far beneath hades as heaven is high above the earth then shall ye know how far i am mightiest of all gods go to now ye gods make trial that ye all may know fasten ye a rope of gold from heaven and all ye gods lay hold thereof and all goddesses yet could ye not drag from heaven to earth zeus counsellor supreme not though ye toiled sore but once i likewise were minded to draw with all my heart then should i draw ye up with very earth and sea withal thereafter would i bind the rope about a pinnacle of olympus and so should all those things be hung in air by so much am i beyond gods and beyond men and is that all In the divine tug of war, Zeus is more than a match for all the other gods together. Is it on this that the lordship of heaven and earth depends, this that we are to worship as highest, we of the brain and heart and soul? And even so, even admitting the ground of supremacy? with what providence or consistency of purpose is it exercised why zeus himself is as capricious as the rest because thetis comes whining to him about an insult put upon achilles he interferes to change the whole course of the war and that too by means of a lying dream even his own direct decrees he can hardly be induced to observe. His son Sarpedon, for example, who is fated, as he says himself, to die, he is yet, at the last moment, in half a mind to save alive. How is such division possible in the will of the supreme God? Or is the fate, of which he speaks something outside himself. But if so, then above him, and if above him, what is he? Not after all the highest, not the supreme at all. What then are we to worship? What is this higher fate? such would be the kind of questions that would vex our candid youth when he approached his homer from the side of theology nor would he fare any better if he took the ethical point of view the gods he would find who should surely at least attain to the human standard not only are capable of every phase of passion anger fear jealousy and above all love but indulge them all with a verve and an abandonment that might make the boldest libertine pause zeus himself for example expends upon the mere catalogue of his amours a good twelve lines of hexameter verse no wonder that hera is jealous and that her lord is driven to put her down in terms better suited to the lips of mortal husbands lady ever art thou imagining nor can i escape thee yet shalt thou in no wise have power to fulfil but wilt be the further from my heart That shall be even the worse for thee. Hide thou in silence, and hearken to my bidding, lest all the gods that are in Olympus keep not off from thee my visitation, when I put forth my hands unapproachable against thee. End of chapter one, section twelve